We'll turn to our scripture reading for this evening from the Gospel of Matthew, reading chapter 19, verses 27, and chapter 20 through, through chapter 20, verses 16. Excuse me. We'll predominantly spend our time today in the parable of the laborer in the vineyard. We're going to start just a little bit before that tonight. So that's Matthew 19 through 27, or 19, 27 through 2016. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly, I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For in the kingdom of heaven, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do with what I, what I choose, with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. I'm sure everyone here remembers what it's like to be a student. At some point, whether today or 60 years ago, the joys and miseries of learning and of test-taking, hours of studying, maybe how the solar system revolves around and how it is arranged, or maybe how to find the circumference of a circle, all to be examined by your teacher. Now, my children with us here tonight, I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you studied. You studied for hours and hours, giving your all, preparing for a test. Meanwhile, another student in your class studied only as the test itself was being passed out to them. After the testing period ends, your teacher takes up the test and announces to the class, you know, I've decided. Everyone gets an A+. How would you feel if you were that student? If you were the student who studied, or maybe you're the student who didn't study, who crammed last minute, would you feel slighted, outraged? Where is the justice? Where is the fairness? I did so much. I sacrificed so much. Or on the other side, whew, man, I uh, 
teacher's great because I deserve to fail. I definitely didn't deserve an A+. Or adults in the room. We feel this way about our jobs, don't we? That our pay should be proportional and fair to the work we put in. If we worked 40-plus hours a week for 10 years, and we find out that Joe, who hired, was hired last week, working only 30 hours a week, makes the same as we do, we cry out. It's unfair. He should not be equal with us. We judge things by our human reckoning and our standards and our conceptions of justice. We're the parents here. The feeling maybe of envy or comparison as you look at other parents and see how their children behave or act. Oh, I know that I put in more work than so-and-so. I spend so much time catechizing my children, training them up, hours teaching them about the faith, and yet they have not professed. And yet so-and-so's parents don't even come to church, and they are blessed with children who follow Christ. Yes, all of these scenarios betray our tendency to compare, our disposition to envy, our predilection, predilection to earning something based upon our efforts. That we view justice from a self-centered view. We define it as not giving an advantage or mercy to anyone else but us. These tendencies, though, go far deeper than mere physical or temporal examples, but into our understanding of the Christian life. Maybe Pastor Bob does so many good things each week and throughout his life. Certainly he's especially loved by the Lord. Certainly he has merited something, something really special in heaven. But me, no, I'm, I'm just a plumber who tries his best to make it to church on Sunday. Or, oh, the apostles, the reformers, they're the Christians that really deserve reward in heaven for all they've done for the kingdom of God. But me, I'm at the end of my life, and I just converted to the faith. I don't even have time to do anything. Can't do many good works. We start to see that we think that certainly God is made in our image. Certainly his kingdom operates how we think it should. It judges and reckons the way that we do. Obviously, this is not the case. And even though we might know it as the right answer, we often fail to really grasp the truth. The truth that lies at the heart of our passage today. The truth that Christ wanted to communicate to his disciples and unto us. The truth that is revealed, sorry, the truth that is a reversal of our very expectations of what the kingdom of God looks like. The truth that the first will be last and the last first. Put a point to it, particularly that God's judgment is not based on our reckoning or understanding. Rather, it is based on his good pleasure, his gracious mercy towards us. To illustrate that, we're going to ask three questions of our text this afternoon. Why, how, and so what? So if you look at our text here in Matthew, we naturally wonder, why did Christ decide to tell his disciples this parable? What is he trying to teach them, to instruct them in? Often the parables themselves reveal certain aspects about the kingdom of God that Christ wants to illustrate, to clarify for his disciples. In certain parables, we're blessed because there's a little comment at the beginning or the end where Christ explains, this is what I mean. Here it's not as explicit in one sense, but it is clear in another. For Matthew frames our parable of the vineyard workers with a maxim. The first will be last and the last first. Or, at the end of this parable, the inverse version of that same phrase. This phrase then forms a bookend. It is our tie to what comes before it. It anchors us there. Starting in verse 1, for the kingdom of heaven is like. Matthew is anchoring this parable as an explanation, an illustration of what he had ju- the principle that Christ was just teaching. Matthew is trusting that we'll follow along with what he's doing, what Christ is communicating. So let's take a moment and look back. Let's look at these stories and events that are right around this parable. Why is Christ 
giving us this word. Well, in 1913, we see Christ rebuking the disciples for hindering children from coming to him. Those who are last and contribute no value to society in one sense are welcomed in. That's the kingdom of God. And in verse 16, a rich young man approaches Christ, desiring to know what good deed must be done to inherit eternal life. And he learns that he must give up all and follow Christ. The one who would have been first, this rich young man, by all worldly standards, is told to become last and thereby enter the kingdom. And when the disciples hear this, and they hear that the rich enter with difficulty into the kingdom, their very understanding of the kingdom itself is shaken, it's reversed. They respond, crying out, astonished. Who then can be saved? Is it not the one with much? The one with power? The one who is blessed? The one who is rich? Who can be saved? But with God, even the impossible is possible because our worldly standards and reckoning mean little to God. Finally, in verse 28 of Matthew 19, Peter realizes and asks, wait, what then will we have? He realizes that the disciples did leave everything to follow Christ. They had become last in the world's evaluations, a truth that would only become more clear with their persecutions after Pentecost. And Christ affirms that Peter is right. They've done good works, and they will be rewarded. As will all those who take up their cross and follow him, all those that leave family and lands, for we are his workmanship, as Ephesians says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God gives them rewards, and he gives us rewards. He promises us great thing for our faithfulness in following him. In this passage, particularly, he promises eternal life. And a hundredfold. Yet, it's not meritorious. It's not earned. The disciples did not earn this reward by merit of their works, and neither do we. How can that be? How can it be that the kingdom of God is so different than how we think, how we operate, how we think of retribution and the reckoning of accounts? Well, Heidelberg, question 63, cuts to the heart of this. It states, How can good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? It's a really good question. It answers, the reward is not earned. It is a gift of grace. The reward is not earned, but it is a gift of grace. While we compare and we try to assess fairness and accomplishments to determine rewards and merit, God does the impossible and via the gift of grace rewards his people. Yet, yet in verse 30, Christ then utters, but many who are first will be last and the last. First, but what is he meaning by this? Well, certainly we do not take this to mean that Christ is going to flip everything on his head in such a way where the apostles do not end up in this unique role of of judging. But Christ is announcing that the kingdom of God is unlike the world. Our externals, our judgments, our values and labors do not guarantee being first. And the apostles themselves should not be arrogant as if they have a superiority or first class Christians above the rest of us. We know they have demonstrated a streak of envy, comparison, and pride, wanting to be great, and not only great, but the greatest. Christ will not have that, nor let them have a false view of the kingdom. So how does, then, Christ demonstrate this teaching? How does he show them that it is so different than the way we conceive of things? In order to illustrate and clarify this point, Christ tells them the parable of the vineyard workers, a story that reveals how different God and his kingdom truly are. A story that... It's composed of three major sections, a hiring process, a payment, and a complaint, and finally a defense. 
verses 1 and 2. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. This is what the kingdom of God is truly like, disciples. That's what he starts to say here. But yet he does not show us right away, but leads us along a long 16-verse climatic story until the conclusion before he shows us. He does this through this ongoing story, which at parts has places that are analogous to the real world. For instance, in reading this parable and others told by Christ, it is clear and easy to see that Christ is drawing an analogy between the Master and God the Father. The Father, who is the very owner of the vineyard in Isaiah, it is he and his kingdom that we are learning more about. But we must not go too far with that, for there is a difference in analogy and allegory. For a parable to work, it has some connection to the real world, to the real life everyday realities that the people are living in. But these points are analogous. Not every detail corresponds to some secret, spiritual, hidden mystery. Indeed, it is the real-life commonplace story with tension, with climax, with twists along the way. So let's consider what we just read. The scene is not very different from what occurs in bazaars in the Middle East today, or even down the road at the Home Depot parking lot on some days. An employer appears on the scene. In need of laborers, he needs some help at the vineyard, and he hires some day workers. This is commonplace for the world of the disciples. Day laborers could be hired, wages negotiated for various tasks and types of work. Likely in our story, given the sheer number of workers that he hires, that there were a lot of day workers and not many permanent workers. At least not enough for the task he had at hand. This could be harvest time or various other number of reasons, but regardless... There are certain seasons that require more helping hands and longer hours. Our story details a cycle of one hour, of three hours, six hours, nine hours, where the master goes back and hires more people. In this conception from the their cultural background, we're thinking of a 12-hour day. From 6 a.m. to 6 p.m., sun up to sundown. The hard work of these laborers is to be paid. A denarius. The psalm is left rather unimportant to the story itself in some ways, as much as the agreement. They both agree that it is adequate for them. They are both pleased with this arrangement. The story begins cycling. The master goes out and search for these workers five times. A few hours pass in the day after his first visit at sunrise, and he finds more workers standing in line, more workers waiting, and he promises them to pay what is right. Verse 4, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give to you does not work out in agreement with this group, but simply says, go, work, I will be just, I will be right to you. I'm certain that these workers were thrilled that they found work for the day. They can hold their heads up high, finding a job, supporting their families. But we do wonder, what is this wage? What is he going to pay them? They're working less. The other workers started at 6 a.m. before the sun had even risen. These workers are going to start at 9. But this Manager of the house goes again at the sixth hour, again at the ninth hour. What's this guy doing? Just keeps going back and hiring more and more. It's 3 p.m. by the ninth hour. Why on earth is he hiring more people? Yet the story keeps us in this tension. It doesn't resolve what he's going to pay them. These people that are only going to be working three hours, he agreed for denarius for the first group, and what is just for the second. What about these other workers? And then, just like that, the unthinkable happens. 
The manager goes again. 5 p.m., an hour before closing time. With only an hour of the workday remaining, he goes and hires more people to come and work. And if work is at all similar in their culture to what it is today in a lot of places, with hours going by, those that are left over are not going to be the greatest workers. It's the bottom of the barrel, the leftovers picked clean that no one wanted to hire. Yet he hires them. We still wonder. We only want to know, how is he going to compensate them? One hour of work? Really? Do they just get a twelfth of a denarius? Whatever that works out to? How will this all work out? And then finally, the narrative gets us to the awaited moment in the payment. Verses 8. Excuse me, verse 8. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. The day of work is done. Harvest is in. It's payday time. The master orders that the laborers are called in and paid. But our eclectic master, yet again, operates uniquely. He throws another curveball in the story. Instead of paying them an order in which they arrived, he pays them from last to first. The guy who barely had time to break a sweat in the cool evening breeze will receive wages before those who put in 12 hours in the Palestinian heat. We are further brought into the story, left with an increasing wonder. What is he going to pay them? Then the unthinkable occurs again. Those men that worked a shady one hour and stood in the marketplace all day are given an entire day's wage. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, he gave each of them received a denarius. In this climatic moment, I'm sure a range of emotions welled up amongst the diverse lined-up workers. The joy and gratitude of the 11th hour workers mixed with the flabbergasted state of everyone else. But the parable draws us in further, not to this 11th hour group, who were surely were overwhelmed with the grace, nor to the other groups, but particularly into those hired first. This group that stands there and watches, with each and every other worker getting paid before them. Those who work an hour, one denarius. Hey, maybe I'll get 12 times that, since I did 12 times the work, I'm sure they thought. Again, the three-hour workers go, one denarius. What? Certainly, they should have been paid more. I mean, the other ones worked less. But I guess three hours to one hour, it's really not that different. Okay. Those work six hours, nine hours go, one denarius. The uneasiness and anger boiling in them, I'm sure. The complaints rising to their lips. Are they really going to make the same? No, no way. We deserve more. We worked harder. We will get more, I'm sure of it. Surely we'll get more. Those who work 12 hours, one denarius. Then like the Israelites in the desert complaining about the manna that fell from heaven, they grumbled angrily against their lot. Verse 12, they said, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. How could you? How dare you make those equal to us? We worked ourselves ragged for 12 hours in the heat. We bore the burden of the day. Can't you see my basket that I harvested compared to those one-hour workers? It's overflowing. Where is the justice? Equal pay for equal work. Our work was not equal. And then the master replies in defense, ending the discussion of our parable. And here it is that we see what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here at the climatic conclusion of this parable, we see the analogy that Christ is drawing to illustrate to his disciples what he had just spoken, that, the God, that God's judgment 
is not based on our reckoning. It's not based on our understanding. The master replies, friend. This friend is not a nice term. It is more pejorative than that, a corrective, a rebuke. I did you no wrong. Here you accuse me of being unjust in my dealings and reckonings with you, but I did you no wrong. Do you not remember what we agreed to? This morning you agreed for Denarius. I am the master of the vineyard. I am the one who has all denarius, and I will freely choose to do what I will with what is mine. And what I choose is to give to the last worker as I gave to you. Why? Because it's my pleasure. It's my choice. It's my freedom and right. And I choose to be generous. So no slighter injustice to you, for we agreed upon one. And then the master cuts to the heart of it. In 15, the ESV puts it as, Do not begrudge my generosity. But if we press a little further in the original language and the idiom there, we can translate it as, Is your eye evil because I am good? This expression is unveiling the sin settled at the heart of these workers. It's not a justice issue despite their claims, for the master was just in his dealing with them. Instead, it is a sin issue. The evil eye drawing on the Old Testament metaphor describing envy, greed, jealousy itself. They were looking at what the others were given by the goodness and mercy of the master, and coveting, lusting with their eyes, their hearts crying, but they, they don't deserve it. I deserve it. I fulfilled all that was required of me. I accomplished it all. They did not. Just compare our works. They were overcome with comparison and envy. And this is where Christ ends the parable. With this claim leveled against them. The point has been shown to us and to the disciples. The parable doesn't need to continue it doesn't matter. Instead, Matthew closes by drawing us back to the previous section, forming that book in saying, the last will be first and the first last. Christ then tells us this parable to teach that God's judgment will be contrary to our natural expectations. God's goodness, his mercy are not limited. He does not reward on the basis of merit or works, but gives rewards as a gift of grace. They're not limited. They can't strictly be calculated as if serving God for 10 years versus 40 years, you upgrade your heavenly home from a mobile home to an Italian villa. As if doing what God requires of us, we could earn some special privilege, some special grace from God and become superior to our brothers and our sisters of the faith. If we then know that the kingdom looks so radically different than what we think, and it truly does reverse our expectations and what we expect, If we know why Christ told the disciples this parable, so what? Well, simply Christ gives us this, you and I, this parable, to instruct us on what to do and what we should believe. What is it that we are to do? We are to seek to do all that God requires of us. As in Ephesians, we are made for good works and we are to walk in them. The fact that the gift of God is unearned does not excuse us from bearing fruit and obedience. For it is impossible for those grafted into Christ through faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. So regardless of whether we are first-hour workers, regardless if we are eleventh-hour workers, we are to work. And a part of this work that this story highlights particularly is that we are to flee from sin, to put to death the flesh, because this parable serves as a warning to the disciples and to us about the dangers of the ideas of superiority in the kingdom, superiority over others, as a warning against comparison, as a warning against envy 
that consumes our heart at the sight of others receiving mercy and grace. It warns us of allowing our envious, evil eyes from begrudging God's gracious gift applied to others. For envy is contrary to the kingdom of God. It is not to us creatures to look upon what the Lord gives us, earthly and heavenly, to those following him and be envious or greedy. We are to be satisfied in what he has promised us and what he has given us. And he has promised us life. He has promised us the free gift, unearned, given by grace through Christ that we might live. For the one who is truly good, the master himself, our eternal almighty father, gives to the poor and needy. Unlike the rich man in the context prior, he gives all he has to us poor souls. With him, the first are last, and the last are first. In serving such a great master, out of gratitude we respond by heeding the warnings of this passage. And instead we rejoice in the gracious goodness that God shows our brothers and sisters. We are not to be envious. We are to flee from envy. Flee from that temptation. It will destroy us. But instead, let us rejoice in the goodness shown to others. What are we to believe? This parable teaches that the way in which God assesses and judges and rewards is incongruent with our reckoning, our reasoning, and our accounting, but instead is his express right as the king of the kingdom of God. This parable particularly has in mind this reality as it relates to believers, but the truth extends past in a way, to our justification as well. Consider Romans 9, 14. What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For God is the potter, and we are but his creation. He is perfect in all his ways, and he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And likewise, though, as we narrow into the specific scope of this passage, we are to believe that he will reward all those as he sees fit. And he will reward us with eternal life. He will reward us with his precious son. He will reward us with the Holy Spirit. The reward that we earnestly seek is the new creation in that sense, where the sublime truth is echoed into eternity that he is our God and we are his people. What a great reward. Christ himself, that is what we are to believe. That is what the parable teaches us, to believe that God is gracious to to the last. God is gracious to all his children and blesses them with the gift of eternal life, not on account of their worth, not on account of their merit, but because of Christ's righteousness. In this, God descends to our level. He assures us that following Christ is not a fruitless endeavor, but likewise that we cannot calculate the gracious rewards of God. Brothers and sisters, this word for us this evening, let it move us to look favorably upon one another. Those who have less, those who quote-unquote do less, to look favorably and to Be thankful to not look down or have an air of superiority that we do more, that we accomplish more, that our good works merit us something special. But let us respond with gratitude to the gift of the gospel, to the gift of grace. Let us respond with the fruits of gratitude. 
Let us trust our great master, the one who sent his son for us, the one who's given us eternal life.